Welcome to the Science at the Local podcast. You're with me, Hamish Clark, and today I'm joined by Dr. Hannah Savasi. She's a linguist who's conducted fieldwork all around the world, including in Papua New Guinea and Africa. Uh, and she's the owner of a prestigious ARC Early uh, Career Researcher Award at Western Sydney University. Uh, hi, Hannah. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Hamish. How are you going this morning? Yeah, well, thank you. Glad to hear it. I was wondering if we could start... Um, by maybe you telling us a little bit more about your work in your own words. What do you do? Sure. Well, my career has evolved, but I guess at, at core I'm a field linguist, which means um, I have, since 2011, I've been working with a community in Papua New Guinea, um, to in a pretty remote part of Papua New Guinea, to basically um, figure out how their language works. Mm -hmm. And so that was my PhD project, um, and a field linguist would go in and um, establish a writing system if there's nothing, and figure out um, are there nouns, are there verbs, what are the internal kind of systematicities in this particular language that no one's ever really um, untangled before. So that's what I really love to do. Um, but at present, actually, I've evolved with this community from that project once we got the grammar of the language mm -hmm. figured out. Um, I started working on how children learn the language. Mm -hmm. And so around the world, it's really, um, there's been, um, when we study how children learn language, I mean, it's an amazing thing that happens everywhere. It's universal. Mm -hmm. yep. um, and it's this amazing ability that children have, but the study of it has really been concentrated in, um, let's say, languages of Western Europe and a bit of East Asia. Okay. And so it's really important that PNG has 10% of the world's languages. It's and amazing. yet there'd only been one study of how children learn those languages this was back in the 70s using, or in the early 80s, using... Um, you know, the technology of then. Okay. And um, so now I'm not the only one now. There are about three of us working on this now in various parts of PNG, but for 800 languages. Wow. <laughs> so, so that's what I've been doing since, um, well, since uh, 2015, actually, is we've run a couple different studies of how kids, um, well, how they break into the language, as we say, mm -hmm. um, from nothing. So, what sort of mistakes do they make and are they do they seem to be using the same sort of mental processes to figure things out that use that we know about for English and French and that kind of thing. Wow. So um, I'd love to ask more about that, but uh, hopefully I won't derail things too much if I ask how you got into this area in the first place, uh, the general area of linguistics. Yeah, well, um, I think there's some kids who like languages, you mm -hmm. know, and just are drawn to them. Even, yeah. I think, you know, I'm, I'm from the U.S. and I grew up pretty monolingually, mm -hmm. even though my, you know, I have heritage language and that sort of thing in my family. My, my parents had been assimilated and, you know, I was raised speaking only English. And I think a lot of people in Australia can relate to that as well. But yep. I was just drawn to languages. So, you know, I come across somebody one point somebody, you know, I had a babysitter at one point who's from Indonesia, actually. Mm -hmm. and, you know, so I would quiz her and say, how do you say this? How do you, you know, so yeah. some, some people just, just do that, I think. And, um, and so, uh, you know, I never had the, I never knew that. So you could do this kind of thing for work. Yeah. That was, you know, who knew? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's a bit of a, a dream to be working on something that you, you're kind of interest, interested in. 
Oh, it's a great dream. Initially. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, it's definitely um, a huge luxury, of course, to, yeah. But so, you're still no, working, I, you know. It's, it's it's still a job, so people should appreciate that as well. As well. No, that's great. Yeah. I, I've sometimes seen people with the sentiment that uh, if you like science, then you shouldn't uh, be worried about working 80-hour weeks and spending all your evenings and weekends on it, and I don't subscribe to that. I think uh, it's great if you love it and want to spend time on it, but it doesn't mean you, you should go, um, <laughs> go crazy with it. <laughs> that's right. Or that you should... Um... Yeah, it's an 80-hour week hobby, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. Yeah, okay. So, um, I mean, learning learning about how a language works seems like a, a massive undertaking. Um, is there a, a, a kind of a methodology that's well-known that you follow? Are there lots of different ways of doing it? Well, so you're talking about the original kind of... Yeah. Yep. About the grammar, yeah. yeah. Well, there's... Well, you know, actually, it's... um, it, The field hasn't... Dev- at core, it's really about um, solving a puzzle, mm-hmm. and there are many different ways to get your head around that puzzle. Not that many people in the world actually start from nihil or nothing um, mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. they go into a community. And of course, I didn't either. Um, so you kind of, um, you know, you do your homework before you go in for the first time and read up on languages that might be related. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very, very rare, probably absolutely non-existent at this point, that somebody would actually um, come across a language that's not related to any other languages, and there's nothing been written about anything in the area and that sort of thing. So you just do yeah. your homework. Yeah. Okay. Um, and once you do your homework, then when you first show up in the field, of course you have to establish. I mean, there's kind of ethical things. Um, so you I was going to say there must be rather substantial field work and uh, not field work, a substantial paperwork involved <laughs> before well, you can get off the ground. Work. There's paperwork, but then of course there's. Um, you know, there's kind of like the human paperwork where yeah. you're going to be working with this community. and That's right. You, you can't just plonk yourself in there and introduce yourself and uh, expect yeah. to, to live there. So that there's a bit of a setup there. Were, were there other people who'd been involved with the communities you were with beforehand, or did you need to kind of start well, that from scratch? No, no, there were. And actually in, in, in PNG, PNG is one of those places where... Um, so I, before that, the way I actually got into this partly is um, I worked as a research assistant before doing my postgraduate studies mm-hmm. I just kind of out of the blue saw a job advertisement this is to follow up on your earlier question mm. for um, a research assistant for this kind of project in Sierra Leone in West Africa mm. and that was what kind of got me back into deciding to go back and study and, mm-hmm. uh, but you know West African society is quite different from PNG and yeah. there I think people it's it's just it's a very different culture mm. and in PNG um, I think it's essential it's considered essential that you have some sort of um, in with the community that you just don't just do a so-called cold call mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. show up at the doorstop and say yeah. here I am you know yeah. it's, it's really um, advantageous to be to have, have a um, to go on mm. kind of the backs of people who had already established connections. And so that's yep. what I did. I, I went in actually with biologists. Um, there okay. was an ongoing, so the place where I have been working, um, people pledged the upper kind of elevation levels of their forest land holdings um, to conservation. So okay. forest conservation mm-hmm. in very recent history. But so once they did that, there was this conservation area that was set up. There was these transects that biologists were going back and forth on, um, and so I actually was biologists who uh, allowed me to come along on one of their trips um, and introduced me to the community. 
You had that in into the community, okay. So have you uh, had any ongoing interactions with those um, uh, biologists and other people? Do you kind of walk past them when you're in the field, see them doing well, what they're doing? That's right. So the biologists, I mean, it was... Uh, um, well, and but I should step back and say that it wasn't all outside. So really, the community themselves. Um, what happens in PNG a lot is that the a lot of the the brunt of the linguistics, what, what I've talked about, kind of figuring out how language works and stuff, is actually done by um, Bible translators in PNG. Oh wow, missionaries. Mm -hmm. And I think that some people who may I don't know. So some people have kind of a negative idea of the idea of a missionary mm -hmm. because they feel that it. Um, it's about erasing culture and replacing it with something foreign and that sort of thing. Yeah. And that very well may be the case in parts of the world. But in PNG, this was that process was complete by, let's say, the 1960s or at the latest 1970s. Mm -hmm. And the country is now like 96% declared Christian by now. Okay. So in fact, the people who go in and do Bible translations, um, I, I work very closely with some of them actually mm -hmm. and consider them colleagues. Mm -hmm. And they, um, it's really about kind of ministering to people who are already Christian and mm -hmm. are very excited about the idea of having the Bible in their own language. So anyway. That must be a real challenge getting, I mean, it's the, uh, probably one of the biggest linguistic projects ever of translating the Bible into all those different languages. Well, that's right. For these people, it um, was their life's work and mm -hmm. it ends up decades and their families, you know, children grow up and go off to university or wherever they're going to go in the States or wherever and then the translation is finally finished. Mm. I'm assuming that's the most translated book ever. I wonder I wonder if it assuming it is what the second most translated yeah. book would be after that's a really the Bible. Good yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. So um uh, that, that, I guess that, that was all to say that the community that I work with had seen a neighboring community have this translation go on. Okay. And they were keen to have a linguist work with them and mm -hmm. kind of get their language figured out, knowing that the end goal wouldn't be a Bible translation. So they had already established this with a guy, um, a wonderful colleague who's Papua New Guinean, mm -hmm. who had worked, who's a biologist and had worked in that area. He's the only other person besides me to be like, kind of learn the local language and adopt into the community. He's from Manus Island. Mm -hmm. So he, they had told him, can you find us a linguist? Mm. And so it was this wonderful thing where um, they had, essentially it was community instigated that I arrived and started this project. So that was really great. Mm. But I did come with the biologists and the biologists basically would come, um, I don't know, once in a long while. And yep. um, if, if they had a project going, then maybe a little more frequently. Um, but again, they'd, they'd be way up in the canopy, sleeping in the canopy. They had nothing to do with the villages really. Mm -hmm. And I would be, Religious. Yeah, okay, yeah, quite quite different day-to-day -day work for sure. So um, I didn't really want to raise the topic, but it must be hard to do field work at the moment in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, how is that affecting your work and, and say, the field more generally? Yeah, well, look, um, for the field more generally, people have a lot of projects on hold, um, mm. which is however, how everything, everyone has a lot of stuff on hold that requires this kind of face-to-face -face stuff. Yep. Um, but for me, actually... Um, so I did my intensive field work, let's say when I was working in Sierra Leone, the idea was if you really want to describe a language, you need to be physically present in the community for a minimum of nine months. Now that okay. nine months can be spread out over several visits, which is what we used to do in Sierra Leone. Mm -hmm. So the longest stretch I was ever in the field was four and a half months. Okay. 
Um, and this is really remote villages too, just like in PNG. So no real mobile phone connection. There's like mm-hmm. one little patch of uh, half a meter square where you try <laughs> to get mobile. You know, right. um, it was accessible only by boat, very far from urban centers and that sort of thing. So um, four and a half months in that kind of community is is quite a long time when you have family and mm. other back home. It's, it can be difficult um, yep. for field workers. So with PNG, I never did that long of a stretch. Um, but so all that really intensive field work um, for me is, well, that's not happening at the moment because I'm now doing the child language stuff. And it's this amazing thing where I have these really, really talented people in PNG who basically run the project for me on a day-to-day basis. That's terrific. And so it is community run. Of course, they're, they're, they're paid, um, mm-hmm. they're paid kind of research assistants, but, um, it's, I, I like that because it means that the project is community. You don't need to be there the entire time and there's deep links into the community as well. Yeah. Yeah. I was just talking with, with someone else, um, uh, a public health researcher talking about trying to move away from the model of uh, kind of objects and subjects of research and trying to involve them uh, in the design and, uh, and and carrying out of studies. And so I can see how that would apply too with anthropology and linguistics, this dichotomy between are they just the subjects kind of passive or are they involved uh, in what you do? Well, I think on a human level, again, so getting getting past the kind of paperwork and, well, like we work out our ethics, as, you know, as in, in these papers back and forth and writing and that kind of thing, really on a human level. I mean, you're on your own in, in the field um, and with this community, living with the community, becoming adopted into their system often. Um, mm-hmm. So it's just what really, I, I think everyone takes a slightly different tack as to once you finish that first intensive period, what sort of connection you maintain with the community and how you fit that with your personal ethics, I guess. Yep. Yeah, interesting. So, um, uh, oh, I lost my train of thought. Um, oh, yeah, in terms of spending time there, is that something that you'd like to do again? Is it kind of, uh, it must be so different to, to day-to-day life. Um, is that something you plan to do repeatedly, or is it you've kind of, you've done that and you, you need to focus on other things? Well, um I, I mean, I think there's a lot of factors. For one, you know, when I when I did my long periods of field work, um, you know, I didn't have kids yet, and mm-hmm. having kids is, is completely different. So the missionaries do it. Um, you okay, know, they, they bring their kids with them? Or? Their kids back and forth. And I brought my kids to the field um, for short periods of field work, um, mm-hmm. a few times. But, um, well, it's, I mean, for me, I really go deep into the communities when, when I go. It was the same for me in Sierra Leone when I was there. Mm. So really... Um, you know, I work alongside people in the fields. I just it, personally, I like getting a feel for their for their life, yeah. and it, it's also kind of a challenge. Like, could I live that way? Mm-hmm. You know, could, could I like you know? Yeah. Could I, could I uh, do it? Um, could I you know carry the same kind of load that they carry? Could I you know cultivate the fields in the same way? You know, could my hands mm-hmm. get tough enough to hold the hoe and that kind of thing? You know, so that mm-hmm. that's been a challenge on the side that I always enjoy. Yeah, that must be amazing. Hmm. But you know, um, it's you, you. You come to a compromise, I think. I mean, mm-hmm. to be honest, I, 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 given my druthers, I guess I, I do prefer living in a in a simpler way. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I guess we just try to come back to Sydney and approximate what we can of that flavor. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, it's pretty hard to maintain a simple life these days. Uh, 
everything seems to be accelerating in terms of technology and, and the way we live and work. Uh, the differences perhaps are intensifying or, or maybe these societies you're working with are also changing uh, equally rapidly, I don't know. Well, they're also changing. And actually, one, one of the, an exciting thing that's pushing me in a new direction that's beyond language really is, um, and this is with colleagues at Marx who, who do mm -hmm. psychology and work on like mental health and that kind of thing. Yep. That's part of Western um, Sydney Uni, uh, just for our listeners, the Marx Institute. So one of my adopted brother in this PNG community who is um, a community leader and he's a former um, government counselor, but he's you know, still considered a... a respected and listened to leader in the community, even though he does not have that role anymore, yeah. approached me back in April or so and said, since you're at the Marx Institute for Brain, Behavior and Development, um, which is where I am now at Western City University, yeah. um, can you think about a way to do a research project that I'm interested in mm -hmm. that is important for our community, um, which is really sussing out, so assessing what our youth need and figuring out what's going on with their um, psychology, what's going on with their viewpoint, what they need, what we can do to um, kind of, let's say, um, head off some problems that he sees arising in the community. Wow. And so something that is changing is that um, the community basically, they, they do self-sufficient agriculture, so they don't sell a whole lot, yep. but they also don't have an internal market economy yeah. And this is a very interesting thing. They're pretty unique in PNG from what I've heard um, mm -hmm. in doing this. They, normally, my, um, my brother from Manus, so mm -hmm. my from Manus, mm -hmm. told me that when he first arrived in this area, the first thing he said was, so where's where's the market? You, you say market even for a very small shop or something. Where's the yeah. market? I can buy some, you know, some beetle nut or some, some cigarettes or tobacco or something like that. Okay. And they said, oh, we don't do market because that's bad for the fabric of our community. Wow. And he said, oh. Mm -hmm. He's been all over PNG. Yeah, okay. So, um, so this community is quite special in that they have really had these made these very um, far-thinking decisions about the mm -hmm. shape of the community. Yeah. Um, and so they don't buy and sell staple foods among themselves, mm -hmm. even though all neighboring communities do. They'll have a weekly market and they'll say, okay, Wednesday's our market day. Bring your taro, bring your sweet potatoes, bring your greens, and um, they buy and sell for cash. Yeah, okay. And this community said, should we do that? And some people are saying, let's do that. Let's let's do market. Let's do, like those other people. We'll get cash that way. They don't really need cash on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. That's a good thing for them. Yep. They, they said, no. Actually, they thought about it and they thought about it and they said, no. We believe that if we do that, um, we're going to erode the fabric of our community in the following way. If somebody needs cash for some reason or decides they want a lot of cash, they might go to their fields, and most people have a bunch of different farm plots scattered in the forest where they have taro growing in all different places at any one time. Yep. They'll go and they'll dig up too much. They'll dig up more than they would normally dig up mm -hmm. and go and sell it to get cash quick. But then the next day, they'll go hungry. Mm -hmm. And so what, what do they do then? They'll either starve or they'll steal from their neighbors, and neither of those are good things. And they said, what we do now is we share amongst ourselves, extended families, neighbors, and that kind of thing, we'll share. Um, mm. A woman goes out and digs up tarot. She'll give some to her mother-in-law. She'll give some to her cousin. She'll give some to... And they said that kind of thing wouldn't be happening. Then. So so they decided back in the 90s, they decided not to do this market, and they've stuck to it. Yeah, fascinating. It's it's a really amazing choice. And actually, I, I wish there's this kind of story could be... A model for some of the things we do. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to imagine that kind of community control uh, in in the West or in Australia. Well, it's not. I mean, it's not so 
much the control. Of course, it's a quite a small community. Um, mm. But you're right. There is this idea that um, those who didn't, who disagreed with the um, decision, still kind of went along with it. It's mm. not like they did their own markets in yeah. defiance. Mm. But but I guess for me, it's really it's really the far sight. Yeah. All these other communities. <laughs> Long term thinking isn't really done yeah. in the West, uh, or you know, around the world, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. But, but, but that's all to say, so my brother came to me and said, um, they, they've had it pretty good, I guess, is, is, is mm -hmm. it's all to say, they've had it pretty good, they don't have issues with, with major issues with crime, major issues with alcohol abuse and this kind of thing. They're in a remote area, it's only accessible by plane, they don't have, um, as they're called, rascals, bad people coming up by road and that kind of thing into yeah, the area. Okay. Mm. They know everyone who's in the area because they just have a sense of who's walking through their own forest lands. Yep. But the youth are... Um, the first generation to have gone through formal schooling, mm. so not to have spent their whole youth really in a semi-traditional way, yeah. walking through their forest, hunting, building houses just for practice, like all the things they used to do. Um, so they're doing much less of that, and you know, there's there's a there's a disconnect between what they've done in school and now what they find themselves coming to, which is the way of life of their parents and yeah i could see how that could raise issues mm. so so what we're hoping to do is to try to actually get some colleagues again from western sydney university in psychology this is a field i've never worked with before mm. involved um and to do some like focus groups and mental health questionnaires and really assess what's going on with these young people mm -hmm. who may be fleeing to the city in greater numbers or just um kind of dropping out of the community institutions yeah and fascinating so is that hard for you to, are you able to participate? Because academia loves to keep people in silos and once you've started in an area, it's hard to, to move. I, you know, I, I guess I've just resisted the silos. Maybe that's my, maybe that's, that's my good. Uh, yeah. mistake. More power to you. That's a mistake. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay, great. Well, look, I'll, I probably should leave it there. Um, but thank you so much for your time, Hannah. It's been fascinating hearing about your work and I wish you all the best with it. And I might ask uh, afterwards if we can share some links with our listeners if they would like to follow up uh, more on anything that you've spoken about today. Sure. Thanks so much, Hamish. You've been listening to the Science at the Local podcast, available on iTunes, soundcloud.com slash scienceatthelocal, and all good podcast providers. Science at the Local is not just a podcast, it's also a series of bi-monthly talks by expert and engaging scientists delivered in a cosy setting to the good folk of the Blue Mountains. Uh, to find out more, go to facebook.com slash scienceatthelocal. Science at the Local is run by me, Hamish Clark, and Kevin Joseph. We're supported by the Inspiring Australia program of the Commonwealth Government and those good folk in the mountains I mentioned earlier. Science is real. From the